If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of the Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as Prime Minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. During this difficult time, we want to make it as easy as possible for our readers to get their copy of BBC History Magazine or BBC History Revealed. So for the next few months, we'll deliver your favourite magazine direct to your door with no delivery charge. From today, you can save up to 70% off the shop price and subscribe from just £9.99. That's just £1.66 per issue. There's never been a better time to get your favourite history magazine delivered direct to your home. To take advantage of this unmissable offer, please visit www.com buysubscriptions.com forward slash history extra and choose your magazine. Don't forget, all of our magazines are also available digitally on your mobile or tablet device. Visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash history extra for more information. We look forward to welcoming you. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. This week marks the 50th anniversary of one of the most nail-biting episodes in the history of space exploration, the Apollo 13 mission. That's the subject of today's conversation with Tom Ellis, a teaching fellow at LSE who specialises in aerospace history. World History's editor Matt Elton spoke to Tom to find out what exactly went wrong on the mission and how such a dramatic event impacted on the wider space race. 
The first question, uh, really, it's the 50th anniversary this year of Apollo 13. Um, what um, situation was a space race in in 1970? Okay, yeah. Well, um, it was a very interesting time because obviously you have this kind of huge crescendo uh, with Apollo 11 uh, in the summer of 1969, this kind of moment that the the space race has been kind of building towards. John F. Kennedy, uh, of course, uh, in 1961, uh, pledges that he's going to try and sort of marshal America's space effort to put a man on the moon by the end of this decade, as uh, he sort of iconically said. And so there's this huge, uh, almost decade-long push in order to reach that. The American space program becomes, or the American crewed space program, I should say, uh, becomes incrementally more uh, sort of sophisticated. You have the Mercury uh, program, uh, which is sort of mastering how to kind of um, keep people alive in space and return them safely. You have Gemini. Uh, the next program, um, Jim Lovell, uh, the the commander of Apollo 13, had, had served in one of those missions. Um, where you're sort of learning about how to kind of dock spacecraft, kind of uh, transfer crews, and then you have Apollo. Um, Apollo, uh, there are sort of various flights uh, before um, Apollo 11, most notably Apollo 8, December 1968, which is is kind of the the key moment where it's clear that the, the Soviets haven't got a hope in hell really of uh reaching the moon or even kind of circumnavigating it you know kind of sending a craft around the moon and back uh before the united states so by the time that apollo 11 takes place um america it's almost a fait accompli the the americans have have demonstrated that they have all of this kind of technology obviously uh it's a very difficult thing to land on the moon but they've, they've conclusively proven uh in the eyes of much of the world that they are ahead and then um you have this kind of huge moment, Apollo uh, 11, as a lot of people were talking about with the 50th anniversary of that. And then um, the, the Apollo program keeps going because obviously you've, you've invested all of this kind of the billions of dollars in this uh, this technology, in this capability. Um, they had to kind of eke out as many missions as possible, uh, both for scientific reasons, but also out of a sense that, you know, the American taxpayer has invested quite heavily in this capability, so we're going to use it for all it's worth. Um, you have Apollo 12 in the uh, autumn of 1969, which is, um, in many people's minds, it's a kind of underwhelming follow-up to uh, Apollo 11. Uh, there are some very iconic moments, uh, you know, kind of uh, Pete, uh, Conrad, uh, one of the astronauts there sort of jumping around the moon, sort of displaying this sort of very joyful uh, sort of uh, boyish glee at being on the moon, much more kind of jolly than uh, than Neil Armstrong and, and Buzz Aldrin, two very serious guys. Um, but overall, there are some problems with uh, the TV transmission from Apollo 12. Uh, this sort of amazing, dazzling color footage they'd hoped to kind of return didn't really work. Um, and so Apollo 12 is is scientifically very valuable. Um, you know, it's it's confirming that America can do this incredible thing. But it's, uh, it's kind of underwhelming. Uh, you know, they've sort of already been to the, the moon. So by the time we get to Apollo 13, um, April uh, 1970, Uh, There's a sense of of kind of America being numbed by repetition about this. Uh, Apollo 13, though, has a a very interesting mission. It's going to be up in the kind of lunar highlands. It's going to be in this very different sort of terrain uh, near this kind of huge crater called the Framoro. Um, So there's this idea that even though this is doing something very new and very interesting, um, it it does feel a bit kind of passe. Um, And perhaps 
you know, that, that there's a hope that with this kind of new backdrop, this kind of mountainous landscape, uh, that that might kind of revive people's interests, uh, people's interest in uh, the space program. Meanwhile, what's kind of going on uh, with with the Soviets is that they're they're having a, an absolutely dreadful time. Um, they're in the the sort of summer of, of 1969. You have a a colossal uh, explosion of the N1 uh, heavy rocket, which the the Soviets had pinned their hopes of going to the moon on. Um, one of the the largest non nuclear explosions in history. And America gets to see this uh, through its spy satellites. America's aware of the, this kind of horrific um, sort of explosion that's been caused by this rocket blowing up during a, a test. Um, and that's the, the, the sort of absolute final nail uh, in the coffin of the Soviets hoping to kind of get their, their lunar crude lunar program off the ground. They time a, uh, a sort of robotic probe um, to try and sort of land on the moon at the same time uh, and hopefully maybe return some, some some lunar soil samples at the same time as Apollo 11 doesn't work it crashes into the moon uh, there's a lot of worry in America that this uh, that there might be an infant you know this absolutely tiny chance that this Soviet uh, lunar robot will crash into Apollo 11 anyway it doesn't happen um, it just crashes harmlessly but that's another kind of humiliation there um, at this time even though the lunar program is officially still going ahead, there are, there's a real sort of sense of gloom and doom within the uh, the Soviet space effort. You know, kind of cosmonauts are, are watching uh, their American counterparts, the astronauts, uh, walk on the moon, having this kind of series of lunar missions uh, ahead of them. Um, and they're sort of watching from afar, uh, sort of seeing their own program in turmoil. Meanwhile, publicly, uh, the Soviet space program is saying, we were never interested in going to the moon. Uh, we're just interested in space stations now. Space stations are, are actually a much more important and uh, worthwhile endeavor than you know just going to the moon uh, for a few hours. So publicly, they're trying to make the best of a bad situation. But and some Americans actually do buy that. Uh, people like Walter Cronkite, the um, the American news anchor, uh, sort of later reflects that you know oh the Soviets were never in the race at all. Well, they were. But um, it's this sort of very odd time then to, to kind of cut a long story short. Um, you have, uh, you know, kind of America's achieved this incredible victory, but now there's this sort of anticlimactic kind of what next um, sort of mood. And at the same time, uh, America's challenger is sort of reorganizing and sort of reassessing itself. And there's also kind of NASA has to think about what's it going to do next and also is it going to be allowed to do. Uh, these kind of huge projects that it wants um, in this sort of post-Apollo world. So that's when Apollo Apollo 13 kind of takes place against that sort of backdrop. Um, what do we know about the uh, the crew of Apollo 13 and what was their mission? What was their objective? Okay, sure. So um, it's a very interesting crew because the sort of initially those guys weren't meant to be uh, on that mission. Um, NASA kind of crew allocation at this time is this really kind of strange... Uh, you could almost say kind of corrupt system uh, in which you have this um, former Mercury astronaut, a guy called Deke Slayton, who is grounded um, because of a sort of very slight heart irregularity. But um, in the early days of the US space effort, that was far too much uh, for him to be allowed to go into space. So as a consolation prize, he's allowed this uh, sort of leeway over choosing uh, the kind of negotiated process by which you choose crews. Um, and so Slayton initially um, wants uh, an alternative crew uh, with a guy called um, Shepard, another early um, American uh, Mercury astronaut leading it. 
So the idea was that Shepard had done this very brief flight early on in the space age in the Mercury program, and now he's finally going to get his chance to go to the moon. You know, kind of a lunar mission is, um, and, and sort of commanding a lunar mission is, is the top prize if you're in the astronaut corps, which has grown quite large by this point. Um, anyway, various sort of things happen. Um, Shepard is recovering from an ear operation. There's also concerns that he's not really ready. Uh, he's been out of the astronaut game in terms of tr training for a rather a long time. Um, and rather than kind of uh, bring in a new commander, the, the situation is that you'd sort of bring in a new crew. So this crew, uh, which initially comprises uh, Jim Lovell, um, Fred Hayes, and a guy called Ken Mattingly, um, is sort of brought in because these guys are trained, they're ready. Uh, Lovell, uh, particularly, um, very experienced. Um, he's sort of been on a Apollo 8. Um, uh, yeah, so he, he's been on um, Apollo 8. He's been on kind of other, other missions as well. Um, so he's already done uh, this incredible, uh, incredibly dangerous uh, and lengthy journey from the Earth to the moon, Apollo 8, circumnavigated the moon. Uh, you have Fred Hayes, who um, he's uh, a former fighter pilot. Uh, this is his first space flight. Um, so Lovell is the commander. Um, then you have Hayes. Hayes, I believe, was going to be the uh, lunar module pilot. He was going to be the guy who sort of takes the lunar module down to the lunar surface. And then lastly, you're meant to have a guy called Ken Mattingly. Um, but he was exposed to rubella. NASA is kind of incredibly cautious in terms of health risks. Um, the idea of if someone has even a sort of comparatively, comparatively minor or um, sort of prosaic illness, they're not going to be allowed up in space because you're essentially in this kind of very small, enclosed environment, breathing all of this recycled air. It's just a hotbed for kind of germs to uh, multiply. So Mattingly is grounded, and uh, a guy called John Swigert, um, Jack Swigert, uh, is assigned. Um, Swigert is also uh, a rookie, um, and he's seen as a bit of a kind of curiosity in the astronaut world because he's he's one of the I think he's the sort of sole at this time uh, unmarried astronaut, uh, and the media goes to to town with this. They kind of create this idea that he's this kind of amazing ladies' man. Um, now, lots of the astronauts uh, had sort of less than perfect marriages. Uh, particularly in the early program, there's a lot of stories about kind of astronauts having affairs and, and sort of all of this very hyper-masculine sort of hijinks that they get up to. But Swigert um, uh, is, is sort of dubbed the, the astronaut with a girl in every airport. Um, but it's also, it's quite difficult kind of integrating him into the crew uh, because he's sort of come in late. They've trained with Mattingly. They've really got to know Mattingly. It's such a, even if sometimes crews aren't friends, I mean, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin uh, work together because they had a job to do, but the idea that they were kind of best friends, absolutely not true. Some crews do become very good friends. Some crews do become very close, but you do have to work incredibly closely with these people and incredibly uh, sort of stressful and draining situations. So the fact that Mattingly was swapped out and you have Swigger swapped in, that was going to be a difficult thing. Obviously, they, they kind of bonded together as a crew and they, they worked extremely well together. Um, but beyond all of this, I think kind of, the people designing uh, the spacecrafts might have seen, uh, you know, sort of um, uh, Tom Wolfe's uh, The Right Stuff puts it, you know, the astronaut's just another component. He's part of this big, you know, is he in the American um, system at this time? The astronaut crew is entirely male. Uh, but they see the astronauts as uh, perhaps another component that can just be slotted in. But actually um, existing and working together in this very stressful environment, uh, 
causes a lot of pressure. And so there has to be a, a, an incredible amount of teamwork in such an enclosed claustrophobic space. So yeah, you have um, Lowell, uh, Lovell, sorry, I've been saying Lowell, Lovell, um, uh, who is the commander, former Apollo 8 uh, veteran. Uh, you have Hayes, uh, who's a rookie, and then you have uh, Swigert, who is the backup to a backup. He's the, the guy who's kind of drafted in comparatively uh, last minute. So Apollo 13's mission uh, is quite different from um, Apollo 11 and Apollo 12, which both land on these, these terrain called the, uh, the Lunar Seas, uh, so the Sea of Tranquility and the Ocean of Storms. And uh, those are the kind of dark patches that we see when we look up at the near side of the moon. Um, Apollo 13 is going to be landing on um, the lunar highlands, which is if you look at the moon, you see the kind of brighter patches. Those are higher um, sort of up areas of the moon. It's going to be landing very near to the rim of um, one of the gigantic kind of craters on the moon, the Fra Mauro, which is or Mauro, which is um, named after a, a, a um, a Venetian astronomer, a uh, Venetian cartographer, I should say. Anyway, um, they're going to be landing there, and quite a lot of their experiments are going to be to do with lunar geology. Uh, one of the things they're going to be doing, or that they were planning on doing, um, they didn't get the chance to, uh, was to drill uh, into the lunar surface and sort of see what the composition of rock is like um, beneath the surface. Uh, they were also going to set up uh, some experiments to um, try and sort of... Uh, study uh, things called solar winds, these kind of charged particles um, that are related to sort of solar activity. They were also uh, going to um, set up uh, just a sort of a range of other experiments to try and see whether the uh, whether you could sort of say that the moon has a kind of atmosphere of its own, no matter how thin. So sort of detecting a lunar atmosphere uh, was another um, of their their sort of jobs whilst they were there. So there's always a kind of, I mean, most of the work that they're doing up there is kind of geology, learning about uh, the moon because the moon's geological history is, is closely connected with the uh, early geological history of our own planet. Uh, and so sort of trying to look into the origins of the moon, the origins of the earth, um, is geology is always kind of an important thing. And then also uh, taking advantage of that, that sort of vantage point out of the atmosphere um, to do uh, sort of uh, experiments with regards to uh, astronomy and space physics, so these kind of solar wind things. So they had a lot of work to do, uh, which sadly they they didn't get any of it done. But their um, the mission the mission that came after them um, ended up taking their sort of landing site and uh, also conducting those experiments. So the work was done in the end, just not by Apollo thirteen. This is one of those stories that's um, shaped inevitably by the fact we know how it ends. Um, but what factors led to the disaster that we know about and how soon on did things start going wrong? Okay, well, um, there, there was a huge uh, investigation afterwards and uh, it's found sort of that these problems were there uh, much sort of uh, long before kind of uh, the, the, craft land, the, the craft launched. But um, in terms of the mission... Uh, things are going sort of comparatively smoothly for um, essentially the first kind of uh, day or so. So they launch at about 1 uh, p.m. Uh, just after maybe quarter past one uh, Houston time uh, on Saturday, April the 11th, uh, 1970. Um, they then sort of, you know, change their course in order to enter this course that will bring them to the moon. 
Uh, on Monday, April the 13th, uh, 8.24 p.m., they um, begin their last uh, TV transmission. So the idea is that you do several kind of TV broadcasts. By this point, uh, because people are kind of getting a bit bored of the, uh, the space program, they've sort of seen this, uh, you know, this, this, this sort of thing uh, many times before, uh, this isn't really going to be carried live. Rather, they do this broadcast and then they sort of send the footage to news uh, sort of channels and they can use that however they want. Anyway, uh, they they sort of begin that last TV transmission about 8.24 and then uh, under an hour later, um, you have this uh, problem with their uh, second oxygen tank. So what happens is that um, there's a, a command that's given uh, by the ground to stir up the oxygen tanks. Um, so Essentially, the, the, the spacecraft needs um, three things in order to, to kind of do its job. It needs water, it needs um, oxygen, and it also needs hydrogen. And those gases are kept at cryogenic temperatures. They're kept at this hyper-cold state, this sort of weird slushy mixture. It's not quite a solid, it's not quite a gas. And from time to time, in order to kind of take accurate readings of how much of uh, these gases they've got left... Um, there'll be a decision to kind of stir the tanks using these fans. Uh, so uh, ground control um, in Houston gives this um, uh, th this kind of signal uh, to Swigert, stir the tanks, and um, and he does so. And this is a kind of routine thing. It's something that kind of happens at various intervals throughout a mission. Um, Swigert uh, flicks the switch. However, there is a, a problem with a, a damaged switch within the tank. Um, and essentially this causes a, a sort of, uh, it becomes heated. Uh, this causes an explosion and there's this very violent explosion that rocks, uh, the spacecraft. Um, the crew feels, uh, the explosion and the kind of aftermath, the shudder of it. Uh, that's when we kind of get Swigger saying, Hey, we've got a problem here. Uh, and then, um, Lovell, uh, gives the iconic phrase, which is Houston, we've had a problem. Um, so it's. They've been in space for a, a, a while, but this is still the early part of the mission. They're on their way to the moon, um, so that's when this kind of uh, this this occurs. It's quite early on in the mission, but during a, a period of time when actually the fact that they could even do this TV transmission just before that shows that there's not much important stuff going on. That's when you schedule in these um, these kind of publicity tasks, which are, you know, uh, maybe not scientifically important or engineeringly important. They're incredibly important in terms of building a rapport with the people who fund your program, uh, the, the American taxpayers and the sort of global media to kind of spread this, uh, the, this sort of message. So even though it's a very important propaganda task, it shows that in engineering and, and sort of uh, flight terms, there's not much going on. It's meant to be fairly, um, fairly sort of, uh, yeah, it's, it's meant to be a fairly uneventful stretch of the mission. But then you have this problem where uh, the second oxygen tank explodes and then the problems just cascade from there. Something that really interests me is not only the fact that obviously mission control then have to scramble to get things sorted to get this fixed, but that some of the techniques they use to help solve the problem are really lo-fi, really seemingly um, shoestring, if you like. Can you talk us through those? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I mean, it's uh, it, there are all of these kind of problems. It seems like when they solve one, 
um, another problem emerges. The first big problem they've got to do is, well, what happens now? They decide pretty quickly we're not going to the moon. The The plan now is to uh, go back to Earth. They have to decide on the route to do that. Once they've decided on that, uh, they then have to think the main um, issue is conserving fuel. So they start getting very creative in terms of which systems they um, they power down. They decide that the best uh, they decide that the best chance for survival is if they use the lunar module, this absolutely tiny uh, cramped module uh, called um, the Aquarius. Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, the, the this absolutely cramped module called the Aquarius. They sort of it's meant to house two people um, for a very brief period of time, but it ends up having to house the entire crew. Uh, they sort of flee into there. They power all of the systems down. There's all of these lengthy negotiations uh, about which systems do you power down and for how long. Um, and th this is just and essentially for the astronauts, it feels probably like they're flying blind. They've been trained on these um, systems in many respects. They're computer programmers as much as they are uh, pilots. So, but then, as you say, yeah, you have these kind of very lo-fi, um, ingenious uh, solutions to some of those problems. So the idea of powering everything down, powering down these systems to just allow you to kind of limp back to Earth is one of them. But another thing is that the... Um, oxygen, uh, the carbon dioxide scrubbers, uh, these kind of devices that are meant to sort of uh, take out carbon dioxide uh, from the, the atmosphere of the, uh, the craft and um, sort of purify it, uh, they pack in. And so they have to kind of construct uh, an adapter. Um, basically, you have a team uh, down on Earth uh, sort of working out how to do this with only the, this sort of bizarre scavenger hunt. Um, to sort of use a cultural reference, it, it kind of feels like a kind of something from Art Attack. They kind of get given this, um, you know, this kind of flight manual cover. They've got this kind of plastic bag. They've got kind of uh, items of clothing, like a sock, um, and just lots of duct tape. Um, they sort of have to cobble together this carbon dioxide scrubble, scrubber. Um, so in the, the Odyssey, uh, the carbon dioxide scrubbers uh, come out of these square canisters. But in the Aquarius, which is where the crew are, they're in these cylindrical holes. So they have to get this square thing to fit into a circular hole. Um, and so they have to create this kind of bizarre adapter. Um, and if they don't do that, they're going to get carbon dioxide poisoning, um, which will mean that they won't be able to kind of make decisions. They'll get kind of steadily more lethargic uh, and sleepy. Uh, they'll get confused. Uh, they won't be able to kind of um, sort of understand the commands that are being given. Um, and then gradually they will be poisoned by the carbon uh, dioxide in their own breath. So even though this thing feels ridiculous that they're having to kind of, uh, you know, essentially duct tape this this sort of weird adapter together, if they don't do it, there is a real chance that even if the, the carbon dioxide doesn't kill them, that they'll make an error that will kill them. So uh, I think kind of that's the, the most kind of... Um, famous uh, or the most kind of notable one but i think a big part of it is just that they're they're also having to kind of at one point navigate using stars rather than kind of um the, the computer um because all of these systems have been powered down um they yeah to, to a great extent they are kind of flying blind and um they're having to sort of reassess all of this training that they've done on simulators and learning this computer system inside out and they have to kind of sort of uh, essentially kind of learn this new way of um, of kind of getting home. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. 
but I hope that people kind of remember that this is something that really happened. This is a real story. This is a true story of ingenuity, of teamwork, and um, of sort of uh, this sort of human connection that an entire planet worth of people felt towards these three individuals. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. You mentioned earlier the importance of team dynamics. Um, How horrible a time were these guys having and how did tension start to fray between them if it did at all? Okay, so they're they're having an absolutely horrible time. Um, it's getting incredibly cold in the the ship. They're 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 in the uh, lunar module that they're traveling in because environmental controls in terms of keeping them uh, warm. A lot of that system has been powered down, so um, it's sort of the the temperature is plummeting. Um, this eventually uh, gives Hayes. Uh, he sort of starts becoming very ill uh, towards the end of the mission, just from this kind of uh, essentially exposure. He's in this cr- incredibly cold environment. There's one point where they consider actually putting on um, their sort of uh, space suits, uh, some of the, the sort of suits that they would have um, for the early part of the mission, their pressure suits. But then they think, no, we'll um, we'll just start sweating too much from being in there, and we'll. Um, will become more dehydrated more quickly. They're having to ration all of the water. And the other thing is, is that they just don't sleep for much of the mission. Uh, the flight surgeon, who is one of the people on the uh, control desk, is constantly saying, you've got to let these guys sleep. These guys need to sleep. If they don't sleep, they're going to start making mistakes. And, you know, there's going to be even more problems. But the crew are adamant. They're saying, no, we're not going to sleep now. We're not going to sleep now. There are some moments, I think, kind of within the crew, um, that there's no kind of you know punch-ups. Um, sort of, they they aren't kind of attacking each other. Uh, I think obviously there, there are points where they're being kind of uh, very short and very brusque with each other, but they do know that they have to work together um, to survive. I think kind of when you have had um, problems within a spacecraft, there are some Soviet missions in the late seventies, early nineteen eighties, where you have these guys up there for months at a time. And they um, sort of start to get on each other's nerves. There's a uh, one case in the, I think, in the early '80s, where a uh, one cosmonaut uh, becomes very offended that another cosmonaut uh, doesn't like his poetry. And so there's this kind of very uh, awkward uh, atmosphere in this this craft with these uh, this sort of very small crew. Apollo 13, it's not so much that. I think it's more kind of. Uh, dehydration, sleep deprivation, uh, constant, you know, kind of low-level terror. Uh, that they're not going to make it back. 
And this occasionally leads to um, some irritation with uh, the ground. I mean, at one point, uh, Lovell takes off uh, the sensors that are attached to him because he he just sort of really resents the fact that the ground can see how stressed he is. They can see his heart rate uh, and they're uncomfortable. They've been on for kind of days, these sort of things. Uh, essentially taped to his skin and he just rips them off but and obviously that causes a, a big sort of uh kerfuffle uh on the uh, the ground they're worried like kind of why have his sensors stopped working have they uh stopped transmitting or something but that is kind of one aspect of irritation where occasionally there is some irritation between um kind of the ground and the crew but to be honest i think the kind of terror of the situation and the fact that these astronauts have been chosen because they are extremely calm eerily calm collected people that's something that kind of you get when journalists and particularly uh some more countercultural figures uh, there's an italian uh writer called ariana Falacci, um also um norman mailer they sort of see the astronauts as these almost robot-like figures because they're just so straight now obviously uh this is a bit of an exaggeration but that's how they kind of come, come across because they've been they've been chosen because they are so calm and collected so it's an absolutely miserable ordeal for them i think particularly for hayes who is is feeling very ill you know not sleeping for days at a time this constant low level fear becoming incredibly dehydrated and you're you're sort of um gradually succumbing to illness from the cold uh, as well as that brief period where they they're worried about kind of carbon uh, dioxide poisoning. Yeah, it's a horrible time, but the fact that they managed to keep it together, I think, really sort of testifies uh, to their their characters, really, because yeah, it's it's a an unimaginable sort of situation to be in that much pressure and with all of those sort of unpleasant environmental factors. I mean, spacecraft are horrible things anyway. Um, people who've been in space say that you know the the main odor that you smell in a spacecraft is is kind of excrement. Like it's a, it's not a pleasant place to be in. Um, you're essentially like you're sharing people have likened it to this you're sharing a port cabin with someone and you have to uh perform every bodily function in there uh so it's an unpleasant uh environment anyway in this kind of recycled air with this constant low level uh sort of hum of all of this machinery um but add into that cold dehydration and terror and it, it just gets even worse so the fact that they were able to um come out of it i think really speaks to them um what factors were most important in the eventual lining them up for re-entry and how touch and go was getting back to earth well kind of there were um a, a lot of factors came together because essentially you have all of these multiple problems and a big issue is how they are going to conserve fuel in order to do a few really key bursts of their kind of uh, engines in order to correct their trajectory and enter into kind of new trajectories in order to get uh, back. There is a problem uh, towards the end where um, there's a, uh, a kind of uh, this this piece of technology called the helium disc on the Aquarius uh, that bursts and that causes a kind of minor explosion. They're worried that that's going to um, sort of deplete fuel further. Luckily, it's survivable. Um, the, the sort of big... Uh, fear is that they're not going to be able to have enough fuel to essentially enter the correct trajectory because there's a worry that they might just end up slingshotting between the moon and back or that they will enter earth on an unsafe trajectory and even once you've kind of got back through the atmosphere you have to worry about things like uh the parachute uh, apparatus of the uh the um the the craft landing um, so this kind of parachute helps it in the kind of final stages. Um, it's kind of got through the uh, the atmosphere. It's sort of been wreathed in flame as it goes down. 
Um, but in 1967, you had an example of a um, Soviet cosmonaut, uh, Vladimir Komarov, who um, is killed when his parachute doesn't deploy correctly. It kind of gets twisted. There's, a, there's an issue with the parachute and he is slammed back into the earth. Um, and, and just this, the force of that and the, the kind of, uh, the, the kind of impact on that, that that has on him, uh, his body is just horrific. So even though, uh, the Soviet craft would land on, uh, they would sort of be parachuted down to land America, they're parachuted down into the ocean that could still happen. The force of kind of hitting the ocean could, um, you know, kill the astronauts. And particularly in that very final stretch, one of the, the scary things is that you can't communicate with the craft. Uh, as you sort of pass through the the atmosphere, they can't reach you. Uh, there are sort of key prob- moments: one when you're kind of on the the sort of far side of the moon, uh, another when you're sort of re-entering uh, the atmosphere where you can't reach the the ground. The ground can't talk to you, and so usually this this kind of bubble of there's this, this hubbub of chatter, uh, and in those moments things can get very quiet. Uh, in mission control because um, there isn't sort of communication happening. Obviously, people are talking, they're sort of reading the the readouts they have, but information isn't really being transmitted. Um, And that, I think, just right at the end, it's essentially right until they they hear um, the crew come back into um, contact that they they sort of know this this ordeal is finally over. But yeah, there's just all this fear about kind of having enough fuel to make it home. And then... um, when they're getting back home, it's like, well, is this ship in a fit state to be able to re-entry? Nothing like this has ever happened. There have been some close calls in space before, but nothing like this. This is really unprecedented. Um, obviously, they've trained for all these eventualities, but not really an eventuality like this where you have so many different things going wrong. We opened by talking about the fact that um, the American space uh, program was waning in terms of public interest. This is all incredibly dramatic, this this mission. Did it revive interest in the space mission in any kind of meaningful way? I think it it does, certainly for a kind of very brief period of time. And I think also it's one of the most memorable um, sort of missions that NASA does in the Apollo program. People remember um, Apollo 11. There is some memory of Apollo 8 as well. It kind of brings back this iconic photograph, Earthrise, of the Earth rising over the, the horizon of the moon, this sort of really eerie, uh, picture of how sort of beautiful but kind of insignificant the world is. Uh, and then Apollo 11, of course, uh, this sort of triumphant moment. Apollo 13, though, is is the other thing that people remember from the Apollo program, because as NASA says, it's a successful failure. It's this very, uh, you know, kind of um, filmic, even the mission before, they could, there have been multiple films that have been made about it, but it's, uh, it's better than any of the kind of space rescue films that are uh, out there at the moment. There are various space rescue films that have come out in the late 1960s, and none of them can top this in terms of drama. And I think also it does something which NASA really struggled with, and I think which kind of handicapped NASA, which was NASA was really, it really struggled to kind of translate what it was doing into meaningful human terms. And Apollo 13 is just such a human story. It is about um, three human beings who have to kind of work together in order to survive. And it's also a story about kind of this vast network and effort of people who are trying and using all of their ingenuity and all of their intellect, um, uh, just all sort of towards this one purpose, which is helping uh, some fellow human beings uh, survive. So there's there's an immense kind of outpouring of relief when they get back. Like suddenly these guys are celebrities again, um, because you know just after the the moon landings uh, happen, uh, when people are interviewed the next year, people can't remember Neil Armstrong's name. Um, but with Apollo 
13, there is this sort of huge outpouring of relief. I mean, you have prayer vigils organized by the Pope. Uh, Nixon is sat up all night watching it as well. You have kind of messages coming in all uh, throughout the world. The Soviets are offering to help. Um, even kind of some small uh, landlocked African countries, uh, I think it's uh, Burundi, um, offers to help as well. Uh, all of these kind of offers are, are pouring in. And I think kind of that has a really, uh, I mean, Nixon as well uh, uses this for his own political benefit, kind of this goodwill that it's created. Um, and it does sort of, there is a brief moment where kind of um, it, this story is just such a huge story, such a dramatic story. Uh, it's quite hard to kind of sneer about it. But the the issue is is that um, around this time NASA is going through this very difficult transition. Its uh, budget is cut massively. President Nixon says that he wants uh, space to kind of take its place as a, a sort of uh, in terms of national priorities, take a more normal place within America's national priorities. So it's no longer going to be this kind of huge, uh, all encompassing effort to to beat the Soviets. Um, actually, space is going to be lower down on the government's priorities now. Uh, NASA's budget peaks in the kind of late 1960s, uh, kind of, um, yeah, before um, Apollo 11, a couple of years before, and it never recovers to uh, that level. Um, NASA's hoping that it's going to be able to send people to, uh, it's going to be able to build this this reusable space shuttle, this huge space station. It's going to go back to the moon, and then eventually it's going to go to Mars. None of that ends up coming true, except for the space station, which is kind of... Uh, kept on in this very reduced vision from what had been initially proposed. Uh, and the space shuttle that is eventually created is this sort of weird compromise between NASA, uh, the Nixon administration, and the Bureau of the Budget, uh, which kind of, it, it is very, a very impressive piece of technology when it eventually arrives, but it, it's nowhere near kind of what NASA hoped. And NASA has to kind of console itself with this. Uh, there's also a, a space station called Skylab that the uh, the Americans kind of go up to um, in the, the the sort of early 1970s. And Skylab's incredibly impressive and a really fascinating story. But essentially, by this point, uh, the public interest has already kind of turned away from space. Uh, NASA's already kind of lost the people. And also, crucially, it's lost kind of political backing. And so space kind of recedes. You have kind of the Skylab missions, um, and you have, um, in 1975, a cooperative mission uh, between the Americans and the Soviets, the Apollo-Soyuz test project. Uh, but even that, this kind of idea of, um, which Apollo-Soyuz is an amazing story and very inspiring in many ways, but at the time, it's kind of seen as this political stunt. It's sort of there to kind of promote this foreign policy that Nixon and then Gerald Ford are doing of reaching out to the Soviets. But um, yeah, there's a sense that the the public have turned away, the money's dried up, and Apollo 13 is seen as this amazing uh, event, but it also kind of underscores, you know, look, here are the risks of this thing. Here are the risks, and are the rewards really worth it? Um, so even though Apollo 13 is this uh, kind of amazing, inspirational story, it's almost too late to really kind of reinvigorate American interest uh, within the space program. What was the impact of this whole mission on the Soviet space program, if there was any? Okay, well, um, it's kind of difficult because by this point, um, the American and Soviet programs have diverged quite considerably. Early on in the space program, um, they're marching in, in lockstep together. Um, but what kind of happens, the main initial uh, thing is that the Soviets are really irritated by this mission because it's been... Um, sort of scheduled uh, for various reasons, but the Soviets see, they think it's been deliberately scheduled to take 
um, attention away from uh, April the 12th, which is Cosmonautics Day in the Soviet Union. That's where they kind of honor Yuri Gagarin, the first cosmonaut, first person to orbit the Earth, and his uh, comrades. So they see, it, oh, well, they've just timed this thing to kind of take um, interest away from Cosmonautics Day. Even more irritatingly for the Soviets, they think this has been, um, or there's indications that people in the Soviet government think this has been deliberately timed to um, detract attention away from Lenin's uh, 100th uh, anniversary. Um, so there's some irritation there. But actually, once they start encountering problems, the Soviets don't gloat about it within their uh, newspapers. They report on this as a... Um, a sort of unfolding story in fairly neutral terms. They're not saying, as they had before, uh, you know, this shows the kind of recklessness of the the, the imperialist capitalist war machine and its space effort. It, you know, it doesn't care about human life. Um, they report in fairly neutral tones. At the same time, the Soviet government reaches out to the Americans and says, if you need help, we can provide it. They can't rescue um, the Apollo uh, astronauts, uh, that'd be impossible. Uh, they wouldn't be able to get something ready in time. And also they wouldn't have been able to dock their ships and exchange crew. They have different atmospheres. That's one of the reasons, um, that's given for the Apollo Soyuz test project, this joint program where they say, well, we need some kind of space rescue capability. And Apollo Soyuz is designed to start investigating that. But, um, there is um, some American suspicion, though, at these Soviet offers of help. Actually, the, the Soviets send these these fishing trawlers, which are, you know, inverted quotes, uh, widely believed to be kind of Soviet spy ships, very near to the splashdown recovery sites. And uh, the Soviets say, look, we're just sending our trawlers there in case the, the guys need some help. We'll, we'll sort of reel them in. But they're seen as kind of, you know, loitering in a, in a sort of slightly unseemly way. Anyway, what happens after this? Um, in 1971, the Soviets... Uh, experience a, a space tragedy. Uh, their first space station, there's been an incredibly successful mission um, to by three cosmonauts to a space station called Salyut 1. Um, incredible mission. Uh, the world's first space birthday is celebrated. One of the cosmonauts has a birthday party. Um, he's given uh, a slice of fresh onion uh, because he's not had any fresh food for the duration of the mission. He can't believe it. He, you know, kind of he's talking on television about how wonderful this onion is. Um, uh, I believe that's kind of that mission. But anyway, um, it's a recurring theme, this kind of gift of sort of fresh vegetables uh, being smuggled in by cosmos. Anyway, they have this kind of amazing mission. These three guys become national heroes. There's a sense in the Soviet Union, it's like we might not have got to the moon, but hey, we've we've accomplished we've accomplished this incredible space station. People have fallen in love with these three cosmonauts and they travel back to Earth uh, when the crew open when the recovery crew opens their spacecraft, uh, they found that all three cosmonauts were dead and their spacecraft had depressurized during re-entry. And it's horrific, just kind of uh, as, a, as a way to die, it would be extremely painful. Um, and that is just a real blow. Um, it's sort of some people reflecting on it have said it, it's like kind of the impact of the, the Kennedy assassination, just this kind of gut punch that these three confident, charismatic uh, cosmonauts are just killed in such a, a sort of senseless way. So the Soviet program is still experiencing all of these horrific difficulties at the time. Um, but in kind of 1970, around this time as well, kind of 1971, sort of slightly after Apollo uh, 13, you do get the sort of first glimmers of space cooperation with Apollo Soyuz. The, the two sides, even if it is for very political reasons, even if it is for this very propagandistic uh, idea, they do start sort of realizing that, you know, 
rather than compete with each other, um, maybe there needs to be some form of cooperation in space. And that's very tentatively, and it takes essentially the end of the Cold War for it to come, but that's the, the first tentative steps towards the International Space Station. And the idea that we have now, where um, you sort of have countries working together, they're obviously, that doesn't solve everything. There's still, you know, I mean, lots of tensions in space between America and China and Russia at the moment, but um, you do kind of get these steps towards a more internationalized, less uh, sort of gung-ho competitive system in this era. Um, how would you like 50 years on people to see this particular mission and its place in history more generally? I guess with Apollo 13, I, I hope people would kind of continue to remember it. And I also, I hope people remember the mission itself, not just the uh, the Tom Hanks film, which is a very good film, but I hope that people kind of remember that this is something that really happened. This is a real story. This is a true story of ingenuity, of teamwork, and um, of sort of uh, the, this sort of human connection that an entire planet worth of people felt towards these three individuals. And I'd hope that they kind of remember that. I'd also hope that they remember, you know, um, that after this happened, you know, America kept doing uh, things in space, that uh, space didn't, space sort of racing, space competition, space cooperation, it didn't end. The story doesn't end in 1969. The story keeps going. And what we need to do is we need to kind of, in a way, I'd say, think about the space race, but we need to maybe de-emphasize it a bit. We need to think about other stories, kind of stories of cooperation, stories that go beyond simple kind of national programs and think about kind of how does technology kind of flow across borders? How do people communicate their technology across borders? Those kind of things. So thinking about kind of the space race being important, but also remembering that, you know, uh, we've now had 50 years since the end of the race to the moon. Um, so kind of thinking about this sort of broader story of humanity in space and kind of rivalries and co cooperation in space, not just this kind of pure story of getting to the moon. There's there's a lot of other stuff out there, I think, is what I'd, I'd hope people would be investigating uh, in, in 50 years' time. That was Tom Ellis. Tom has written a feature on the Apollo 13 mission for the April issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now and also includes articles on Bloody Mary, the spies who inspired James Bond and the Declaration of Arbroath. If you're interested in this subject, then also check out the second series of the BBC podcast 13 Minutes to the Moon. That's available on BBC Sounds now and it goes into more depth about the mission and features interviews with some of the people involved. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. <laughs>